Finish this sentence with me. There's no place like... No bed feels as good. No chair sits as comfortably. No door is more sweet to open than going home. Even when you're on vacation, even when you've been away someplace fun, there's just something great about coming down your street, about walking up to your door, about walking in and sitting down in your place. Maybe an apartment, it may be a condo, it may be a house, but wherever it is, even a dorm room, there's something nice about being back home. Well, today, we finish the cycle of Israel in exile, coming home. It's 450 years before Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how 50,000 Israelites came, and a man named Ezra is going to lead some more home, and then more are going to come with a man named Nehemiah. And so today, we're going to look at both of those gentlemen's lives, because I believe those two are great difference makers. But let's start with a word of prayer. Will you bow with me? Father, we've sung so many praises to you in a moment ago, singing that you are awesome. The way that you, in patience and love, brought hope to Israel. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the way that you opened doors, brought people back, renewed covenants. And, Father, we're faithful to your promises. This morning, as we walk through this study, I ask that you guide and bless us. For, Father, we want to go home too. We want to walk up that door and open it and be with you. And we don't know what it's going to be like. God, sometimes people call them gates of pearls or streets of gold. And yet, we know that those are just images to try and describe how beautiful it would be to be at home with you. Lord, I think of some in our church family like Ed Ferris who are walking the very last miles of the way before he walks through that door to be with you. And others who struggled with surgeries or illnesses or disabilities. And Father, some who are just plain in pain that doesn't have anything to do with the body, but everything to do with the heart. And they would love to just go home. Father, today, may we gain some understanding from two men who not only led people back to the promised land, but also helped them to understand it wasn't about a zip code. It wasn't about a location, a GPS. It was about a home they had in their hearts with you. And through that made a huge difference for all of us. Guide us in that, we pray in Christ Jesus' holy name. And all that agree say... Amen. We're going to move a little quickly in order to uh, to get done in uh, about 20 minutes so we can take about 10 minutes to share in answering some of the questions that you uh, that you turned in. When my sons were young, we put them in a school that allowed them to learn a second language. Well, it actually kind of forced them to. It was a school in which nothing but Spanish was spoken in the kindergarten classrooms. Uh, This was because research had been done, a lot of it coming from Canada, that if you put a kid in a situation where they're learning two languages at a very early age, it's a whole lot easier than most of us who waited until high school to try and learn French or Spanish. How many took a foreign language in high school? Just raise your hand high. Yeah. Now, keep those hands up. Come on, keep them up. I want to see how many. 
Now, keep your hand up if you can still speak the foreign language that you learn. Exactly. That's, that's, now, some, oh, some are in high school saying, hey, I can still speak it. So here's the deal. They, uh, they put these kids in this classroom, and they put them in there with a, with a teacher who only spoke Spanish. Now, I kept waiting for our kids to complain or whine, but, of course, they didn't know any different. They thought, well, some kids get English teachers, some kids get Spanish teachers. I just happened to get one that spoke Spanish. And so I started asking uh, the teachers, you know, what can we do at home to help? Because I don't speak Spanish, my wife doesn't speak Spanish, and yet our kids' homework is in Spanish. And so uh, Mrs. Maria, the teacher, said, well, Mr. Walling, if you could just read... Uh, stories to them in Spanish. And she gave us a couple of story books. And she said, Spanish is very easy. It's actually as much easier to read than English because each one of the letters in Spanish gets pronounced. Just talk to some of our Latino members and they'll tell you it's a whole lot harder for them to learn English than it is for us to learn a little bit of Spanish. So I, I decided I would read a story to the boys every night. But the stories were, you know, still a little difficult to sound out. So I read the same story to them every night through their kindergarten years. Los tres cerditos. Anybody know what that story is? It starts like this. Javier una vez tres cerditos. El primer cerdito construye una casita de paja. El segundo cerdito construye una casita de madera. El tercer cerdito construye una casita de ladrillos. Is anybody with me yet? Mm -hmm. Entonces, el lobo tocó a la puerta. Déjame entrar. Déjame entrar. En los cerditos dice, ni le sueñas, ni lo pienses, ni por todo el camino del mundo. En el lobo dice, yo soplo y resoplo y derrumbaré. And you guys are going, what in the world is he talking about? Except for all our Latino members who go, yeah, I know that story. That's the story. Anybody know? Tell me the three little pigs. Very good. Very good. I love that part about soplo y resoplo. I'm going to huff and I'm going to puff and I'm going to blow your house down. Well, you need to understand that the people in Israel had settled for straw and sticks. They'd gotten back home to the promised land, but instead of really building what they needed so that they could be, if you will, God's community again, they were like those first and second pigs. I don't know if you thought much about them. I had a lot of time to think about those pigs during that year, reading that story over and over and thinking, what was wrong with those first two guys? But of course, if you've ever messed with bricks, you know why you make a house out of straw. Or maybe throw one up out of sticks. Because it's what? It's easier. It's quicker. It's handy. It's fast. You're not going to hurt your fingers. You're not going to be lugging piles of brick. You don't have to wait for the mortar to set. Maybe that's a good way of understanding what can happen to you and I in our lives. When God calls us to be his people and we say, oh, okay, fine. Well, what does that mean? Uh, do I need to get baptized? All right, I'll get baptized. Baptism is a wonderful, great commitment. And by the way, if you've never done that, maybe when you were little, your parents said, yeah, we, we had you baptized. You know what we find in the Bible is we find that baptism is something that adults took part in. Baptism is something that believers experience. And if you ever haven't ever been baptized as a believer, I want to open the doors of conversation. We would love to have you have that blessing 
Because I believe that's not only what Jesus modeled and the apostles taught, but it's a great blessing you don't want to miss of being there and understanding that because you believe in Jesus, you're baptized in his name. Anybody's been baptized and it's blessed your life? Can I get an oh yeah? All right. So, uh, in fact, we had a couple last week after, uh, after Winterfest, praise God, of some kids who were baptized into Christ. And we, we're thankful for that. I want to say um, uh, Carolyn Sperry, right? Was, uh, Charlotte, thank you, Sperry, was, uh, was baptized last week after Winterfest. But there's a danger that a little bit like the first couple of pigs and maybe like these Israelites, you get there and you say, okay, great, I've been baptized, fine, I guess, I, I guess I'm done well, Ezra and Nehemiah are two great leaders that come to Israel at different times, a dozen or so years apart, and yet they are faced with the same kind of issues. Three things. Take your bulletin out and let's walk through this together. First, you need to know they both encountered a mess. Now, Ezra encounters a moral mess and Nehemiah encounters a physical mess, but it's related to the, the identity of God's people. Both of them encounter people who are just living in straws and sticks. Morally, Ezra encounters it. Here's what it says in Ezra chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Ezra says, After these things had been done, the leaders came to me, and they said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their descendants, with their detestable practices. Now, he lists off a bunch of the people, the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Perizzites, etc. And the reason he does so is these are the very people that God had said, Israel, you need to understand, you cannot let them take your identity. Well, how are we going to keep Israelites who are saying there is one awesome God from falling prey to all of these other groups that say, oh, there's many gods. Here, just put your God in with us and we'll all be happy. God says, I'll tell you what you're going to have to do. You cannot marry someone who is not willing to have Yahweh be their God. Now, hear this clearly. You cannot marry someone, he says, who is not willing to have Yahweh be their God. Somebody said, well, I thought they couldn't marry anyone who's a foreigner. No, no, no. You can be a proselyte. You can come and give your heart to Yahweh. You can commit yourself to him. It's not a matter of your skin. It's not a matter of your parentage. It is a matter of who is the one true living God. Is everybody with me on this? Through the years, even in our country, we've struggled with sometimes people saying, well, is it right for racists to intermarry? You need to know the Bible does not address whether your husband or your wife had parentage in Ireland or had parentage in Africa. But here's what the Bible does say. If you expect to have a happy, joyous Christian home, with one parent who says, or one spouse who says, Yahweh is the Lord, and another who says, no, no, I think this. Warning. Warning. How can two people walk together unless they decide to walk on the same road? So Ezra's heart is broken over this. Now, Nehemiah, of course, most of you remember from last summer, our Nehemiah series, Nehemiah finds a very different kind of mess. His mess had to do with the fact that the walls were broken down and the people had just decided, oh, well, we'll just be here, which means we'll be completely open to the fact that we can be pillaged by anybody who comes through here. We don't have an identity 
as a town, as a community. I really believe it's an identity issue as much as it's a safety issue. And Nehemiah steps in and says, this is a mess. Just like Ezra steps in and says, oh my, this is a mess. Now, the second thing they both do is that they both encounter their messes, if you will, with faith. Just mark it down in your bulletin. They faced it with faith. Now, they could have faced it with frustration. They could have faced it with fear. They could have said, oh, man, there's just no way we're going to be able to do anything here. But instead, both of them turned to God. What do you do when you encounter a mess? What do you do when you walk into a situation and you say, oh, no, this is awful? Sometimes the first thing we do is we start trying to find somebody to blame. Do you play the blame game at your house? Who did this? Why did you leave that there? A glass gets knocked over and it's a debate between you shouldn't have set it so close to the edge of the table. You shouldn't have filled it so full. Well, you should have been more careful when you turned around. I find it very moving that Ezra and Nehemiah both skipped the blame game and simply said, God, we know the only way we're going to deal with this is through you. Listen to Ezra's words. Here we are before you, he says, the Lord God of Israel. Here we are before you in our guilt. Go ahead to that second one. That's right. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though because of it, can we all say this? Not one of us, say it with me, not can stand in your... Ezra doesn't say, these people, he says, not one of us are worthy of standing in your presence. When Nehemiah prays, he prays in the same kind of confessional way. Listen to his language. Nehemiah says, if it pleases the king, may have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. Nehemiah prays a confessional prayer and then says, I'm willing to go. Did you ever wonder why Nehemiah just didn't send a note back with his brother? What do you mean the walls are broken? You tell those people. I mean, he's 800 miles away. He could have easily said, it's not my issue. But he says, you know what, God? I'm going to go before the king and I'm going to ask his help. Of course, the king spots that Nehemiah is frowning and says, hey, why aren't you smiling? And in that beautiful story of Nehemiah, Nehemiah steps out and goes back and says, we're going to do this and it's going to start with me. But I'm jumping ahead. Mark down number three, if you would. They did make a real difference. Ezra rebuilds the morals of the people there and so challenges them that they're willing to say, yes, you're right. And they straighten this intermarriage issue out, which is really they straighten out the issue of other gods that had crept in. But they're willing to pay the price of doing that. And second, Nehemiah is, is, leads them in rebuilding the defenses and the walls are put up around the city. And within a short period of time, an amazingly short period of time for that vast project, the city is restored. God's city, the holy city, is once again whole. Now, we could quit right there, but I'm going to fly through this. If you miss something about Ezra and Nehemiah's character, I think you miss the purpose of these stories. Yes, in the big picture, it is the people coming back to Israel. It is God restoring his covenant and the temple and the altar and the walls. But there's a reason that these books in the Bible are even referred to as Ezra and as Nehemiah. Because it comes down to individual people who want to make a difference. And we've used that phrase around here a lot, making a real difference for Christ. 
Who makes a difference? Does a crowd? Does a nation? Does a church? Oh, certainly one could say that a specific church or a specific nation or a group of people have made a difference in a community. But what I want to underline today is differences are made by individuals who decide to do something. Would you generally agree with that? Differences are made by individuals who decide to do something about a situation they look at and say, man, this is a mess. So what does a difference maker do? Well, spiritually, I think we can look at at least four things that these two did when it came to their character. First off, someone who wants to make a difference, people who really want to make a difference, are willing to pay the price of, mark this down, being different. The reason Ezra's story just sticks out to me in part is because of the way he responds when he hears what happened. Go over for a minute in your Bibles if you've got them. It's chapter 9. This is glossed over just a little bit in the story. But in chapter 9 of the book of Ezra, beginning in verse 3, Ezra does this when he hears about this marriage issue. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled the hair from my head and my beard, and I sat down and appalled. And then everyone who heard this trembled at the words of God and gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. And I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifices. What's he doing? He's making a public spectacle of himself, somebody would say. Pulling the hair out of his head, pulling the hair out of his beard. What's that all about? Well, it has a couple of meanings, but probably the strongest is that was the way that an Israelite man would show shame. For instance, uh, for those of you in middle school and high school, if you brought home an F and you lived back in Ezra's day, your dad would begin to pull the hair out of his beard. That's a frightening thought, isn't it? Or maybe pull the hair off of his head. You say, why would he do that? Because you brought shame on him. As long as I'm talking about it. No, I won't go there. Let's just say that it's important that whatever it is you're doing, you recognize that it reflects on your family. So here is Ezra, and here is he saying, do you realize that the choices you're making to dishonor and disobey God's law is breaking my heart and tearing me apart? So what does he do? He tears his clothes, and he pulls the hairs out of his beard, and he weeps, and he cries, and he sits down in the middle. Man, that is a spectacle. Today we'd be saying, Ezra, Ezra, get it together, buddy. Come on. We, you know, people are staring. People are pointing. And Ezra would say, absolutely. When Martin Luther King led the protests, there were those who said over and over again, Martin, can't we just negotiate? Can't we just talk? And yes, there was some talking going on in the civil rights days, but it became very, very clear. It became very, very clear to people like Rosa Parks that it's going to take more than just talk. It's going to take someone being willing to pay the price of being different. You know, I had a chance to meet Fred Gray, who is the lawyer who defended Rosa Parks and is a fine Christian man. And Fred talked about the experience of being there. He talked about the threats he got. Death threats. Because he was defending this woman. You remember it? Who refused to give up her seat 
on a bus because she was black and she was told to go to the back. The people who stood up for civil rights, the people who stood up for the women's right to vote, the people who stood up for the freedom in, in our country, and we get excited about thinking about their tea parties and their valiant victories, but there was also Valley Forge. And there were also those who were shot or hung because they were willing to say, I will not live in straw and sticks. People who are willing to make a difference are willing to pay the price by being different. And how did they do that? Well, mark down number two. People who love what's right will hurt over what's wrong. You know, the first thing Nehemiah does when he hears about the walls, and, and I've got to say, as I, as I reread these stories, I was extremely convicted about this one. What Nehemiah does, as well as Ezra, is they don't do what I call a holy rant. Do you ever do a holy rant? That's when we read something in the paper about a terrible thing. Anybody been following the story of this disabled South African athlete who maybe shot his girlfriend four or five times through the door? I mean, you know, all, all over the, 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 the television. What, what's your reaction? What happens inside you when you hear a story like that? Or when we heard about the shootings up at Sandy Hook. You know what's easy? Is to do a holy rant. This world is so messed up. I tell you what people are just so selfish. Can you believe that kid that did that? Can you believe those terrorists? Can you believe? Oh man, I tell you what. This just this world is going to hell in a handbasket. And God just ought to burn them all up. And, and what does that do? Makes you feel good, doesn't it? Makes you feel a little superior. I can tell you, I've done them right here in the pulpit. Well, it's not really a pulpit, the music stand. I mean, the, the spot here. I've gotten up and preached sermons that were just, man, I tell you what, the world is so awful and just, you know, people out there who are living together and listening to rock and roll music and, you know, what, 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 whatever it is you want to decry, right? People who are just doing terrible things. And then when the sermon is over, everybody says, oh, preacher, that's right. That's right. Let me tell you what. If Ezra and Nehemiah were sitting there, they'd say, what are you trying to accomplish? Because what I don't see, preacher, is I don't see you hurting. Because people who love what is right will hurt over what is wrong. People who love what is right will not simply wag a finger or denounce someone, but will say, oh, my heart is breaking over this. Nehemiah weeps and fasts. Ezra pulls out his beard and sits down in the city square ashamed and appalled. And when he prays to God, it is not these people, it is we people. Next time a tragedy, next time a terrible thing, what am I saying? Tomorrow when you open the paper, whatever's there, would you take a moment and just lay your hands on that story and say, God, I'm sorry. We are a broken, fallen, faulty people. 
And our lying and cheating and stealing may not make it to the front page of the observer. Our cruelty to one another may not make it on Nancy Grace. But God, forgive us. And let me be more of what you want me to be. Can I get an amen on that? That's, that's the third principle here. People who really want to lead real change start with themselves. Nehemiah goes himself to Jerusalem. Ezra himself says, God, I want to begin by confessing my sin. It's interesting how both of these guys who had every right to point the finger instead say, it's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. That old spiritual speaks to the fact that it's not my sister. Anybody? You guys remember this one? Some, some of you? It's not my sister, not my brother, but it's me, oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. Not my sister, not my brother, but it's me, oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. <laughs> that just that breaks my heart. Because it's so easy to do this. Yeah, my sister needs it. Yeah, my brother needs it. But Ezra and Nehemiah say, it's me, oh Lord. It's me. But you say, Jeff, how in the world are we going to do anything to change things if what you're saying we ought to do is cry? Yeah, I'd rather have you tear up than just tear them up. Is everybody with me on that? Is hurt and then confess. Well, don't you see what you just did? Repentance and confession always precede salvation. And salvation doesn't come this way. How does salvation come? It's another old spiritual. Salvation came down. Mark down the last one. People who trust in God put their lives where their faith is. People who trust in God put their lives where their faith is. And they say, Lord, I give it to you. With Ezra, it meant the reestablishment of respect for God's law and God's will. With Nehemiah, it meant the leading and the building and the restoring of the defenses and the very identity of Israel. For both of these difference makers, the only path to changing their community, city, if you will, their world, was by saying, Lord... This is a tragedy, and I own it. Forgive me, use me, and I'm willing to be called foolish as they stepped out and end the story of the Old Testament. Malachi, the very last prophet, prophesies during this day and age, and he warns Israel. He says, now, if you think you're going to handle your issues by being stingy, forget it. But he says, if you will pull out of your pockets... What you have, not just money. If you'll give it to God, he'll open the windows of heaven and it'll come down in a torrent. Amen. All right, we've just got about 10 minutes to go. Taylor, did we get a lot of good questions? We did. Thank you so much. Those of you who uh, wrote in on Facebook or emailed in or wrote on the connection cards over the last couple of weeks, we've got your lingering questions from the Old Testament. So, guys, if we can start our, uh, our timer we can kick this off. Oh, wonderful. All right, we got 10 minutes. First question, how did the book of Esther get into the Bible? Oh, I can do that one quick. God put it there. Next question. Uh, okay, all right, I'll, I'll give you a little more. 
Somebody is probably asking, how do we get the different books of the Bible? And why did this particular book sing as doesn't mention God? Well, the Old Testament was assembled, uh, more or less, by the, uh, by the rabbis who worked in uh, the, a group that was called the Great Assembly. And back uh, about three centuries before Jesus, that were assembling all of these different writings. You say, well, who told them? I really do believe that God was at work through that process. So by the time you get to the New Testament, you know, the Bible didn't show up like this. Bonk. It didn't just fall out of heaven. So you've got the Old Testament and the, the, the guys who worked in the 70s, scholars that worked preparing what's called the Septuagint, which was a Latin version of the Bible, they went through. Now, the book of Esther actually shows up about 3 BC. There are a couple of versions of it, but it has that long, long history of being part of the, the Talmud, the Tanakh, which are the Hebrew scriptures. Go to passages and you'll learn more about that. How did these books get in? God worked through the leaders verifying their power. It was God's hand. All right. Uh, with about eight and a half minutes, uh, why is there so much violence in the Old Testament, wow. especially when God commands you know, yeah. the killing of, of innocent you know, women and children, yeah, old yeah, peoples? Yeah. Tough, good, good question. Okay. Three parts of this, because people ask this a lot. How can you guys believe in God when you read the Old Testament all this violence? Number one, violence came into the world when we violated God's law. It shows up in the garden. There is no violence until sin shows up. And we violate God's law. And since then, violence has been part of our world and our culture. God did not say, I'm going to make a violent world. We broke God's law. Second, there are moments when God uses violence as what I'm going to call the last best resort, but it's still ugly. This is graphic, but I hope you'll understand. If you saw an armed man, no, if you saw an armed boy rushing towards an elementary school and you happen to be out hunting and you seeing this guy with an automatic weapon and he's 12 or 13 and he's running towards the playground and then you saw him shoot a child and then you saw him shoot another child. If you're close, if you're a good shot, Nobody in this room would want to shoot a 12-year-old. No one. But sometimes the last best resort is still an ugly choice. Let me tell you what. God so loved the world that he gave his son. But yes, there were times when he said the Amorites or the Hittites or the Jebusites with their detestable uh, uh, ways just have to be wiped off the earth. God made those choices, but the violence came from us. Now, if you really want to answer the question, I can't believe all this violence. Let me tell you this. What's really amazing is God didn't kill all of us because every single one of us have violated his laws and have said, I don't care who you are. I'm doing it my way. What's amazing is that God allows us to live. It's not amazing that some people die. We all deserve it. What's amazing is that God is so gracious with us. Tough question. Good question. All right. Six and a half minutes. How did blood make atonement for sin in the Old Testament? Okay. Blood does not atone sin. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches that blood and that, that sacrifice and offering rolled the sins forward up to Jesus who finished with the only blood sacrifice that atoned for sins and that was the blood of Jesus Christ. So you say, well then what's the whole blood thing in the Old Testament? God was trying to teach us a principle and it's a very powerful one. Sin destroys life. 
Guys, every time you look at something and it's sin and you think, yeah, but maybe this time it'll be fun. Sin destroys life. And God taught his people that by saying the sin offering will always have blood in it. I don't want you bringing a dead rock and saying, here's my offering. No, no, I don't want you bringing the gold and the jewels. Here's what I want you to bring. I want you to bring something that's alive. And when you slit that little lamb's neck and you see that blood and you go, oh, I want you to hate sin because sin destroys lives. I believe that's the red thread that goes all the way through Scripture until Jesus comes and gives his life and no more blood sacrifice was ever made. All right, next question. Why did God create the world and people? Because he wanted to. Next question. I mean, you know, when you're God. Now, if you say, Jeff, what's your opinion about this? Because the scripture doesn't tell us a whole lot. It does tell us this. Jesus said, I want to make man in our image. God wanted relationship with you and I. I believe God created the world and people because of his love and his desire to have relationship with us and not just relationship for a year or for 20 years or for 80 years or 100 years. God says, I want you to come and live with me forever. Man, I've got to believe that the love of God is what moved him to create the world and to create people and then to give his son for us. That's my opinion. All right, four and a half minutes. Why was God silent when Israel was in Egypt for 400 years? Good question. He made that promise to Abraham. It's going to be 400 years that that the people are going to be in slavery in Egypt. I got two answers. One, wow, is God challenging and helping us today to understand. When you and I don't get an answer to prayer in like a week, we get attitude. What's up with this, Lord? I've been praying a whole seven days about this. What's wrong? Can you imagine praying a decade? And waiting faithfully for God. Can you imagine waiting a lifetime and dying and not seeing the promise yet? That's what the Israelites were doing as they waited. Now, there's another little interesting line in which he says to Abraham, and I've got to give a first service person credit for this. Kay came up and said, hey, Jeff, what about this? He told Abraham that the sin of the Amorites would not yet be full until the end of that 400 years. That tells me that God has patience with these people who do these detestable things, saying, man, I want to give them as much chance to turn around as possible. God is not in the business of I love punishment because the Bible says the soul that loves violence, the Lord hates. God, God's, God's not in there. This is no you know, free pass for you to go, yeah, beat up people when they're wrong. Uh-uh. So why 400 years? I believe God was both teaching and God had made a promise. And that 400 years of silence prepared them for what God was about to do in deliverance. By the way, you got another 400 years at the end of the prophets until Jesus comes. Kind of interesting. All right, time's running out. You've got to speed up your answers. Thank you, sir. Uh, why aren't there dinosaurs mentioned in the Old Testament? We always get the Three dinosaurs. All right, here we go. Super fast. Number one, if somebody says the dinosaurs are never mentioned, well, the word dinosaur is not used, but the word leviathan, the word dragon, the word behemoth, and some descriptions of these creatures that show that, yeah, it's, if, if you're looking for it, there are at least 28 different times when these bizarre creatures are mentioned that may well have been the dinosaurs. However... There's some that say, well, the dinosaurs and man lived at the same time. And others that would say, no, the dinosaurs lived way before mankind did. Uh, The creation, if you look it up, the creation, um, I think it's Young Earth Society and the Creation Museum up in Kentucky has these uh, images of, you know, men riding Tyrannosauruses or whatever. I I don't know. Not going to dig into that. I do know this. Yeah, there are dinosaur bones in this earth. At some point, God had them here. Whether he did all that in creation and made us an earth with the fossils in it or whether the dinosaurs roamed the earth as we see uh, in science class, I I wasn't there. I don't know. But I guarantee you, our God created everything that has been. 
Dinosaurs, nor birds, nor even dolphins were not the center of the show. He so loved humans that he gave his life for you. So don't let the dinosaurs get out of their spot. All right. With uh, less than two minutes, are women equal in God's eyes? And if so, why do we see such inconsistent treatment in the Old Testament? Thank you, Catherine, for turning in this question. All right. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) The Bible is way before its time more egalitarian than any suffragette could ever imagine. The Bible says, way back in the book of Galatians, when Paul writes and says, there's no Junior Greek, male nor female. Let me tell you what. You cannot find earlier strong egalitarian language in that. What are you saying, Jeff? Definitely. God says, I value men and I value women. You've got the Debras and the Ruths and the Esthers, stories in the Old Testament. You can't have a Jesus without a Mary. Can I get an oh yeah there? God does do so. Does he give them different, at times, opportunities? Yes. And while the women say, well, how come we can't be this? Well, I don't know. Maybe the guy should stand around and say, well, how come I can't have a baby? God chose to do it in a way where men and women are complementary to one another. Uh, now, inconsistencies in the Old Testament, no more than in the Old Testament, God was doing special things with the Jews, but not with the Arabs. You're saying he loved the Arabs less? No. Or that God would do certain things with grown-ups and not with children. Did he love children less? Not at all. Uh, it's a lot easier for me as a guy to make these kind of glib statements than it is for some of you ladies who have been unappreciated, who have been abused, and who have been mistreated. So let me make sure you understand. I'm not being glib about this. But never let society tell you, never let anybody, Christian or not, tell you you're a second-class citizen. You're a child of the king and just as valuable as any guy. Okay. All right, you got 10 seconds. If God changes his mind because of, you know, Abraham and Moses, does that mean he was wrong? Okay. One, I have a God who knows it all. So when God says he he repented about an issue, I do not believe it's because God went, oh, my goodness, didn't see that coming. Wow. Didn't know that was going to, oh, I'm out of time. Uh, We have a God who understands and who creates the future. And so when I read in Scripture that God repented, He is demonstrating for us something He wants us to be able to do, which is to look at a situation and say, wow, I want to do the right thing. God will always do the right thing. Now, there are those who will say that God at times will shield His own knowledge from Himself. I'm not sure exactly how that works, but I know this. I have a God that I can trust who has made promises to me. And when God promises, it happens. Okay, ran over time. Thank you for your questions. Great, great questions. Lousy answers. All right, good deal. I'm so excited to turn the page. I can't hardly wait for next week when we walk into the footsteps of Jesus. But for this week, let me ask you this question. We started with a story at the beginning. We saw the upper story of God's handiwork and the lower story of man's mess. It's fun to see how a story begins. You're drawn into exciting things in a story's middle. Can I ask you a touchy question? How is your story going to end? You know, you get to write it. And whatever ending you want, you better be working on it today. I know what God hopes your ending is. And they went home to be with me forever. One of our members, Ed Ferris, is being watched over and prayed over by his sweet wife, Molly. Ed's body is just about gone. 
Ed's been a man who has loved Jesus, taught about Christ in foreign countries, been a part of our church. And today, if you looked at him, he's so sweet and frail. Sometimes isn't even aware of who Molly is. But I guarantee you this, the ending of his story is a beautiful one. For maybe even before this service is over, Ed closed his eyes and went home. There's no place like home when you're with the Father. I don't know if today you need to come and take a seat here and say, I I need to start building with bricks. I'm tired of this hay and stubble. Or maybe you just need to come and say, I need to write the ending of my story by giving my life to Jesus and being baptized in his name today. Well, while we sing this last song, this front row is open for you. But it may be that you don't need to come to the front. You need to go into the world and make a difference. Then be a difference maker. While we stand and while we sing, if you're in need, won't you come?